Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, entrepreneurs. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sean DiMartile, founder of Takeoff Capital. Sean left his high-stress job as an air traffic controller to pursue his dream of becoming a full-time real estate investor. He took the plunge by liquidating his 401k and using all his savings to purchase a 32-unit multifamily apartment out of state. With his initial investment tripling, Sean expanded his business, completing two large syndications and growing his portfolio to 300 multifamily units, a 10-key hotel, and four Airbnbs. His podcast, where he shares his journey and insights in real estate investing, has over 200,000 total listens, and he's built a network beyond expectations. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you, George, so much for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. So far, I'm hearing you talk about things like running it like a business, understanding your pricing. You're talking about things like knowing your competition, your amenities, and setting yourself apart like that. But is it is it necessary then to really curate the experiences? I've been some very fancy Airbnbs. Do you need uh, to be unique like that to be a good operator, or is it enough to just really know your business? I think it's enough to just really know your business depending on the market. So- mm -hmm. You know, it's very dependent on the market and I'll explain why. For example, if you were going to put a, if you wanted a new Airbnb in Joshua Tree, which is a very popular market out here at Joshua Tree National Park, there is a lot of supply out there. So in that market, just being a good operator that has good pricing is not going to make you substantial returns. And I know this from experience with business partners that have properties out there. If in that market, you need to have certain things like a hot tub. If you don't have a hot tub in a market like that, you're going to be behind the pack. So in that market, yes. In other markets, you know, just the location could be enough. I have a property in Louisville, Kentucky, that's in an area called Nulu, which is right by all the, it's a couple minute walk from all the distilleries and the best restaurants and stuff. That just having, you know, that location could be enough if you're a great operator. So I would say data is king. Use data websites. AirDNA is okay. I'm not a huge fan of it. I like Price Labs better. But use data websites, and that will really paint the picture for you so much more clear because you can really sum it up as if you are a dime a dozen in your market, there's you're not, it's it's gonna be too hard to set yourself apart. For example, if your three bedroom is just like uh, a thousand other three bedrooms in your market, and you can see what those three bedrooms are getting in revenue. I don't think that you're going to be getting substantially more than them by just simply being a good operating or knowing your market. I do think in today's day and age, it's worth spending the money to get those amenities. So I think that's another point to be made is that success in Airbnb moving forward is going to take, it's, it's going to be a lot more capital intensive. I do think it's going to require more, more investing into the property. Great insights there. And I know I'm, an, I'm a syndicator, you syndicate as well. Most people in our business love 401ks, but you, I, I know, are famously not a fan. Tell us why. I'm not a fan for several reasons, and then I'll tell you why I liquidated my 401k, every, every penny of it uh, that I could. 
the reason why I'm not a fan of 401ks is number one, usually that's tied to your employer in, in most cases. So, you know, they call them a lot of these retirement benefits. They call them the golden handcuffs that and your salary in order to keep contributing to that and having, you know, your employer put their matching in and things like that. You got to keep working for your employer. I just also don't like the the core concept of investing into the 401k because when you retire your 401k all it is is investing into the index funds right and then you know your allocation of whether it's in the S&P 500 versus bonds you can change over time and all that but the point being is that you hit retirement age and the way that you you make sure your money outlives you and you don't run out of money is typically living off of the 4% rule so you'll live off of 4% of whatever is in your retirement account and that retirement account slowly drains over time. It's going to get lower and lower and lower, depending on your withdrawal rate. Real estate is the complete opposite. If I well, what about having a self-directed? Why why aren't you a fan of of doing uh, self-directed and maybe investing in someone else's deal? That's a good point. The reason why I'm not interested in that is because I I can have more control with real estate. If I wouldn't, I'll put it this way too. If I would not have liquidated my 401k and gotten started like going all in on multifamily real estate, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And I'd still be working at my yeah. air traffic control job because that was my seed money to get going. Now, I wouldn't recommend this for everybody listening to this, especially since everyone's situation is different. You know, I'm a single guy without a family, so that didn't matter for me. But by investing in real estate, as opposed to these 401ks, when I have a portfolio at retirement, as time goes on, my cash flow continues to increase as rents go up. My net worth is increasing over time. I'm getting richer over time with my portfolio as opposed to getting poor doing withdrawals from my 401k. And I understand that there's some pretty decent tax benefits with 401ks. But with 401ks, I can't write off my income the same way I can with rental income. I don't have as many levers I can pull and as much freedom. I, I don't want that. I don't want to have be penalized if I want to take more out of my 401k. I don't want to have to borrow against it. With real estate, I just have way more freedom. My cash flow increases over time. My net worth increases much more dramatically. And if you're a good real estate investor, you can outperform the market over time. Like 8% is, you know, since the inception of the, of, uh, the S&P 500 has been about the average annualized return. And for me, that's easily achievable with cash flow, loan pay down, uh, and appreciation and tax benefits. So I believe right. real estate is stronger. I just love it. Well, so then it's not so much about investing in real estate per se, mm -hmm. but maintaining that one key characteristic of real estate investments, that of control. So one of the things that I think is very important in real estate, particularly if you are in commercial real estate, is to make sure that you know the value you're adding, you want to focus and you want to figure out where you fit in on the team. But one of the things I think everybody should do is underwriting. And I know you've got some underwriting tips for us. What would you say to people that are looking to improve their underwriting skills? That's a great point. And I, and I want to say that I also believe everyone should understand how to underwrite, especially if you're going to raise money from people. If you don't understand the numbers, then it's it's hard for me to trust you that you know that this that you have a lot of confidence in this deal. But as far as underwriting, a couple of tips that I would recommend people do. Number one, depending on what you're getting into, make sure that you're on using some kind of a really solid data website. Like CoStar is king. 
Granted, that's really expensive. You can expect to spend $1,500 a month for that, but that will give you the most robust data for multifamily investing. Um, outside of that, you have things like PropStream or even NeighborhoodScout.com. Now, when you're underwriting, a couple of tips, one that I'd said before, and I want to reiterate, if you're doing multifamily, make sure you're conservative on your exit cap rate, because that is by far the biggest lever on determining what your projected exit price is going to be. Um, way too many people that I've seen and even come on my podcast over the past couple of years were thinking that the cap rates wouldn't adjust much over time moving forward because the times were good. And guess what? Interest right. rates went up and cap rates have decompressed significantly. And many properties across the country have lost up to 20% of their value. Don't be like those people and make sure that you add 0 0.20 or, or you know, maybe give or take a little bit more, a little bit less each year of the hold, okay? Number two, whenever you're pulling comps, do a thorough pull on those comps when you're looking at your lease or rental comps. And you need to pull a list and then go through those one by one, number one. And also never assume you're going to be the top rental unit. So, you know, a couple tips, you can go through each of these potential co rental comps, yeah. right? Um, make sure you're writing down what their amenities are, their square footage, um, you know, location, things like that. And so you can separate the, you know, the best ones from the middle of the pack and the lower of the pack and just never assume you're going to be at the top of that pack. I always like to assume that I'm a third of the way down, for example, on either a cost yeah. per square foot or overall unit price. The second thing when it comes to comps, if you're underwriting is always, always call the property manager of those rental comps. If you're not familiar with the market to verify those comps. And I say that because these websites where you're pulling data from, whether it's Rentometer or Neighborhood Scout or whatever, they're often just scraping data from listing sites like Zillow or whatever. And that might not capture what it actually rented for. It's just capturing that, hey, you know, they said that they were going to lease this for $1,500 a month and then it came off the market. So we're assuming that they lease it for $1,500 a month. So you always want to call and verify. That's another tip. You know, whenever you're looking at a lot of your assumptions in underwriting, number one, be conservative on all of them. Like even if the for the past five years, rent growth has averaged 7% in a market, I would still just put 2%. Just do the 2% um, annual inflation rate and stay conservative and don't be too rosy in your projections. It's a common thing I see all the time with people underwriting properties. Another tip that I would give is, oh, let's see. I'm trying to think of something unique here because- Well, how about this? I'll give you a second to think about that. I just want to say that your focus on comps is- Something that I find very encouraging because when I get deals sent to me, whether it's by an active operator looking for other partner or whether it's something that I'm looking to invest in passively, first thing that annoys me is I see that the comps are all off. And then I feel like, well, I've got to go and do hours of my own research to see if this is true or not. And your focus on verification is good. I would say that when it comes to underwriting trust, but verify, verify, verify. That is the most important thing you can do. And you, when you consider how much time it takes to put together one of these deals, the time that it takes to call a few apartments and make sure that you understand not only what is the actual uh, rental rates, but also the pictures, make sure they're updated. I always like to ask, hey, is that is that unit newly renovated at that price? Because I've seen high prices with old pictures and vice versa. You know, you really don't know 
what you're comparing until you, you've called up and gotten a really good handle on what's actually in the units. Absolutely. Another bit of advice, George, that I would give to people is contingency capital is huge. Put it this way, contingency capital and debt. Okay, if you're getting debt, this is kind of a, you know similar to underwriting. First of all, just make sure you're getting securing an, an interest rate that's fixed and as long of a term as you possibly can so, so that you can predict it. Third thing, so I guess not the third thing, this is like the fifth thing or something like that. <laughs> is We're on the um, other hand now. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on the other hand now. Um, contingency capital is what I was going to get into. But with contingency capital, the reason why I want to focus on this is because on my first deal, I actually ran out of capital uh, working through the deal and had to borrow more money in order to complete the project. Now, granted, we ended up making out well, and I learned a lot of lessons on that first deal. Right, three, three X, not too shabby. Yeah, not too shabby. But the thing is, the the main reason that any real estate deal goes south is because you run out of money. It, and usually that's because of the debt. Like more than any other reason, deals go south and people lose properties because they can't keep making debt payments. So, you know, regardless of what kind of a project you're doing, most lenders are going to require you to have a 1.20 or higher DSCR anyways. And generally speaking, that's going to, that should be a safe number. And that's why they set that number. But you need to be, I'm, I like to be conservative in every single facet. Now, when I'm raising money and, 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 analyzing my deal, whatever I've, the hard and soft costs are going to be for construction or renovations, at a minimum, add 20% to that number. When I'm talking to contractors, I say, give me a very conservative number for this. You know, Don't try to win the deal with the lowest price because I'm not just going to pick the lowest price. And then I take that and I, I add want to say 20%. I love that too, because I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a construction budget where I have to ask the question, how many bids did you get? And it's like, well, no, this is kind of usually what it sort of costs, you know, in, in my other market. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so it, that's, I see the same thing all the time too. And I think that, um, you know, I, I've just been through the ringer before to understand more clearly, but for me, you know, I understand too, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, but that, you know, raising all that extra money is going to water down the returns. Yeah, it will. It, it obviously the less money you bring to a deal, the juicier the returns would look. You know, like oh, I can get ninety percent LTV on this loan that makes the returns through the roof. I get it, but that just you're trading that for more risk. So you have to make that decision on how much risk you're going to be taking and be upfront with that with your investors. If you put twenty percent or more contingency on top of every single number that you get, you're gonna set yourself up for what will inevitably go wrong because in every single real estate deal, something doesn't go according to plan and you gotta have money. That's just the main thing. So I always try to tell people, be flush with cash. And here's Love another it. thing, one more thing. Do not, and I repeat, if you're listening to this, do not count on future cash flow to fund your renovations. I've done that, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Don't do it. Just if you don't have the money for it, then just don't do the deal. Well, I love it. You got to look not only at the returns, but how they're generated. And if you're reducing the likelihood of surviving or getting those returns by not having the appropriate reserves, not good at all. So I would say active and passive investors take note. Now, I'm glad you mentioned mistakes because that's something I really wanted to hit before we head into our super exciting lightning round, the seven. One of the things that I respect the most about operators, not just the track record, their knowledge, or how many years they've been in the business, 
but someone who's willing to talk about mistakes and how they learn. So tell us about some of those pitfalls or speed bumps that you've hit along the way and what they've taught you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I agree. If you're ever looking, if you're listening to this and you're ever like looking up to a particular real estate investor and you've never heard of a mistake that they've made, I promise you there is no such thing as a real estate investor that's never made a mistake. That doesn't exist. Can I just interject? I, I say <laughs> I love uh, sailing and I've been told that, uh, you know, you're not a captain if you've never hit the dock. It's <laughs> a good point. I like that analogy. So, uh, yeah, some big lessons that I've learned. And so I'm going to go back to that first deal because I learned so many lessons from that deal. And one of the re reasons why we ran out of funds to continue the business plan was because of not doing a thorough enough inspection and raising extra money to account for all those things. So what ended up happening on this deal is as we were progressing with the business plan, all of the sudden, because this was a 1968 vintage 32-unit apartment. And over time, like there was a huge clay pipe that ran underneath the parking lot that was collapsed and it was causing sewage backup into some of the units. There was another cast iron pipe that ran underneath the hallway leading out to one of the drains that was so corroded over time that hardly any liquids could get through. And what I've learned from that is every single time that I am now looking at a property, I scoop the sewer lines, as many sewer lines as I can. I pay the inspectors to stick a camera down there and scope it and make sure that we know what we're dealing with. The reason why is because you can get a standard inspection on most of your properties, but they can't peel back the walls. And the more layers of the onion you peel back, the more it stinks. So I want to get in there as much as I can. Another thing that I always like to look at uh, that I've learned, because on that same property, a bunch of air conditioners started just dying on us in the first summer of ownership. Now, anytime I'm buying a multifamily property, I have somebody inspect those uh, HVACs thoroughly to let me know, you know what their condition is. Do they look like maintenance has been maintained? Can you give me an estimated remaining useful life on this so that I understand if I'm going to have to replace this because you're going to replace those for $4,000 plus per if they start breaking. And if yeah. you get into a summer and you weren't accounting for that and you have five of those break, that's 20 grand that you didn't account for. So one of the biggest lessons I've learned and that I would stress to you guys is always pay the extra money to get a the most and thorough inspection that you possibly can. Um, just because the more you know, the more you can prepare for in the more money you can raise. All right, I love it. I wish we could go on and on because this is just beautiful and <laughs> other themes that I'd love to hit like capital raising. But I think that uh, we're going to have to make this lightning round a true lightning round today. So Let's are you ready for the 70? Up to the challenge? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm prepared All right, Sean, and I'm ready to it. fire them off. Hey, you're a professional. All right. <laughs> So if you could be known for just one thing, what would it be? If I could be known for just one thing, I just want to be uh, known for being a good, genuine guy that was willing to help. There's a lot of mental health things that you also need to focus on as an entrepreneur. And I'm just opening up and saying that because I've had a lot of struggles. There's a lot of ups and downs as an entrepreneur. So if you are thinking of becoming an entrepreneur and you're listening to this podcast, just prepare yourself and understand 
that you might even need to talk to somebody about your struggles as you're going through this because early on in entrepreneurship, there's a ton of work. There's a ton of risk you're going to be taking and you just kind of need to be mentally prepared for that. So, you know, that might be um, a different answer than you usually get. No, I like it. I Hey, this is an entrepreneurship podcast. So yeah, <laughs> <Good point. laughs> having trouble, maybe you should come talk to me if you get great success stories and a large okay. following. Can you uh, tell us what is the personal characteristic most pivotal to your success? I think the personal characteristic most pivotal pivotal to my success is work ethic. And I say that because that was something that was really instilled into me by my my mom and dad. I've worked a job since I was 16. And so I'm able to, like, I do well putting in tons of hours into my business and I enjoy doing it. And I think that's just helped me carry on with all these different hats I have to wear as an entrepreneur. So really just work ethic and and the, the drive to be willing to put in more and more hours in order to move the needle a little bit more. All right. Amazing. Okay. Oh, so this, these are my random questions. Could be anything could be about life, could be about business, something completely from left field. Just tell me when to stop cutting the deck. So, okay, go ahead. Let's shoot. All right. That question. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Hardest thing I've ever done. I think that it was raising capital um, for like my first deal because that really took me way outside of my comfort zone. And it was really hard for me to, I, I didn't have any marketing training. Um, I didn't, I really had nothing to go off of other than like asking some questions to a couple of people that had done it before. And that really was one of the hardest things I've ever done, like emotionally and um, and just physically like trying to meet my raise goal outside of that it was uh i'll say a second one i guess but outside of that it was training to be an air traffic controller that i found that to be really really hard and just incredibly stressful i could only imagine uh can you name a book that's helped afford you as a leader and as an entrepreneur and tell us why i would say the e-myth is the one that comes to mind really quickly and the reason why is because that teaches you as an entrepreneur how to properly scale your business by hiring out the right employees so you can free up your time to do what's important for the business. This is something that took me some time to learn. And it forced me as an entrepreneur a little bit and also as a leader to be able to train my team on the significance of their role and why it's so important and the business's success. Those are things that I really had to learn in order to be a successful leader in a company. I've read it and I'll, I'll second that. Uh, can you tell us what's the greatest hurdle you've faced in your business over the last year and what did it teach you? The greatest hurdle that I've faced in my business over the last year was, wow, that one is going to be um, really deal flow. And I would even like throw out their monetary stuff and cost cutting. And I'll actually probably just go with that one, the monetary stuff, because, you know, as the real estate deal flows kind of decrease, um, I've had to make changes in my business. And the reason being is that I have a lot of overhead. It's very expensive to be a full-time real estate syndicator and have all of these, you know, subscriptions and money going out to marketing and, and masterminds and all these different things you're doing to raise capital and continuously be doing deals. And over the past year, obviously, deal flow has dropped down, like drop, dropped off a cliff, and it's become increasingly harder to find deals. And so I've kind of had to restructure my business a little bit. And 
cut costs to ensure that I have a lot of runway to be able to keep operating, keep looking for these deals and providing opportunities when they come. I mean, this deal, like I'm making an offer on and hopefully closing on only my second deal so far this year. So it's really taught me patience. And it's taught me that, you know, there's ebbs and flows with business. And sometimes you do have to kind of cut your costs and expenses a little bit um, during certain economic times. And I've learned that this year. All right, great. And can you send us out with a quote to help forge our listeners as leaders and entrepreneurs? Absolutely. So the quote that one of the best quotes that I love is from Marcus Aurelius. Often what be what, what's in the way becomes the way. And I, I'll give you guys an example to illustrate what that quote is talking about. A year ago, I didn't want to put out tons of content on Instagram and be really heavy on LinkedIn and write a blog and do all of this marketing stuff. It was outside my comfort zone and I didn't want to dedicate the time to it. And then thinking about that quote, I ended up saying, you know what? All right, fine. I'm just going to do everything that I can and cast the widest net to attract more people to my business. And so I started doing all of that stuff and going out on lots of other podcasts and whatnot. And I'm seeing results from it. So that was what was standing in the way of me raising even more capital and growing my business even more. So as he says, what often is in your way becomes the way. Beautiful. And one of my favorites, love the Stoics. I think they have a lot to say, not just to entrepreneurs and high achievers, but to our entire society today. And one quick question on the way out, just make sure that we can reach you. What's the best way to do that? Uh, email, website, carrier pigeon, smoke signal. How do we get in touch with Sean Martile? Thank you so much for the opportunity to tell, to tell the listeners this. Um, you can find me very easily by going to investorshawn.com. That's uh, Sean is spelled S-H-A-W-N. So investorshawn.com. Right, right there, you can get all of my information on, you know, you can follow me on social media. You can check out some of my blogs. You can sign up for my newsletter so you can follow along with what I'm doing. And I also have a free ebook that you can download by scrolling to the bottom of the page. And that completely kind of outlines the business or the strategy we talked to earlier, uh, the bonus ADU program. You can learn how to do it, where to do it, what you got to do, all that kind of stuff. And it's totally free. Great. And that would be California Gold unlocking SoCal's most profitable real estate investment strategy over the next decade. I want to thank you, Sean, for being such a very open uh, guest and sharing your knowledge and experience with our audience. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure and an amazing conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.